0: For December 12th, 2016, it's the Overthinking and Podcast, episode 441. James Marsden is suffering for all of our sins. overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We are never happier than when we are uh, hanging out together, enjoying one another's company and discussing our favorite pop culture, movies, TV, music, whatever we're watching, whatever we're reading, whatever we're into. It's more fun when we talk about it together. We've got an amazing crew to talk about Westworld tonight. That's right. This is the Westworld episode, a week after the the finale. I think we finally digested it enough to make some kind of sense uh, of all the things in that story. But there will be spoilers. And this is a show where uh, there's a mystery aspect to it. Uh, there are plot things that could decrease your enjoyment. That's not true of of every work of fiction, uh, where knowing more about it would decrease your enjoyment. But it's true of Westworld. So use your discretion from this point forward. Let's quick introduce the panel before we get into to the question of the week, because we have some beloved overthinkers who are infrequent guests on the Overthinking It podcast. Starting with our friend Ben Adams. Hey Ben. Hey Matt. Very excited to have you on to talk about Westworld. I am. I am excited to
1: uh, put on the white hat and uh, you know run around shooting uh, theories with you.
0: Got it. White hat and and just remember they take the theories down below, they clean them up, and the theories are back uh, in their loop tomorrow. So you can't really damage a theory when you shoot it uh pete fenzel yeah pete fenzel uh a stalwart overthinking a podcaster uh peter you a white hat or a black hat
2: <laughs> i'm white hat 110 percent, definitely
0: <laughs> excellent yeah
2: I, I used to get in trouble in my old uh, dungeons and dragons games for not being subversive enough in that sort of dark 90s way
0: <laughs> so yeah yeah listening yeah listening to grunge you mean or or wearing wearing unwashed... uh, they, used
2: to, they used to refer to me as the diplomat as an insult because i always tried to solve problems without violence <laughs> <So>. excellent
0: <laughs> and uh that is the chocolatey baritone of uh, one john parrish john it's a pleasure to have you back to talk about westworld coming back online what up what up oh
3: sorry di- dialing down affect a little what up what up what up
0: uh well uh, way okay just because we're doing this white hat or black hat
3: uh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna run rampant through a lot of these theories. I'm gonna have to go black hat for this for this visit. On future visits, who knows?
0: Yep, absolutely. And uh, I am your host, Matt Rather. And as we all know, I run through stories like this with a donkey head on. Uh, let's <laughs> let's do the uh, let's do the question of the week. Just very quickly, panel, if you could go to a Westworld-like theme park with a you know presumably historically accurate recreation of of any time period any location any sort of milieu that you wanted to kind of mess around in for whatever whatever reason i'm not judging you know whatever whatever you want to do uh what would it be what is your world uh what world do you want to be a part of first in the alphabet drink if you're playing the drinking game because it's not pete fenzel it is our friend ben adams
1: so my answer to this is is partially inspired by my uh, my own history uh, um, in the navy with uh, with fighting pirates. I, I would like to go to Pirate World, or uh, I guess it'd be West Indies World. I, I don't know exactly what uh, what we can call it, but uh, you know, like mid sixteenth seventeenth century, uh, you know, exploration of the Caribbean, running around with pirate ships. Uh, but really, what that's about is I like beach vacations, and that seems like a really good way to get you have an excuse to relax on the beach. And, like, maybe occasionally ride in a pirate ship. And, would would you, know, you be
0: technically a pirate or, or technically a privateer?
1: I think I'd go with privateer. It'd be more fun to, you know, you gotta, you got to have the little letter, the the fancy letter that says you're allowed to be a pirate.
0: Yeah, that sounds, you know, that sounds nice. Um, and I, I hear the rum is good.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a good excuse to, you know, hang out on the water, you know, maybe take in the occasional, like, raiding of a city or something, but mm-hmm. mostly just hang out and enjoy the... uh the beautiful tropical caribbean
0: yeah well it's a, it's a lovely it's a lovely part of the world uh and uh we'll we'll leave you there go on to go on to pete fenzel pete what world are you going to
2: so if I'm going to a world that's full of hyper-intelligent, hyper-capable robots, and part of the fun is that I get to go on quests, and I get to see the robots be really good at things, but also compete against the robots and, and have the kind of difficulty of the robots kind of get dialed up or dialed down based on whether I'm gonna succeed or fail. And and a world that kind of feels expansive and has a lot of variety and will allow me to do stuff that I really enjoy. I think that my world would begin at the Maryland School of Arts? Uh, That's right, it would be step up to the world. It would be an entire robot world of dance competitions uh, that would start with the relative microcosm of the step up movies and expand into different genres of dance the farther that you went out. You could either take the road of being a dancer, putting together a dance team of robots, or a dance judge. Maybe you can make it all the way up to so you think you can dance and uh, you could judge the robot competitions and get your friends to call in from home to also judge the robot dance competitions. I just think that if there's something that's gonna go good or go bad, it's gonna be success or it's gonna be failure. Failure, or something that if you do it over and over and over again enough times, you find out who you really are. I just I, got I just got to go with dancing, 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 because it's both it's both virtuosity and self-discovery in one. And think, Channing Tatum bot would be a good friend to have. I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I so. mean, absolutely. He'd be a good bro, but you'd also meet a, uh, you'd also meet a dance partner bot who just like is so her, her motor skills are so dexterous, uh, and her cognitive abilities. So lightning fast that she would move in perfect sync with you and be able to anticipate your every move as you did even, uh, the, the riskiest of, of lifts and dips.
2: I'd really have to be careful because I feel like that kind of relationship could run into trouble really fast. So you Ooh. have to guard, you have to guard your conscience and step up to the world, uh, and, and really figure out where you stand.
0: Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just, would you right? Would you would you be a a white capizio sneaker or a black capizio sneaker uh, dancer in that world?
2: I would definitely be looking forward to robot heavy D, though. That would be a pretty, pretty big addition to the whole experience.
0: Next in the alphabet, John Parrish. Where are you headed on your world vacation?
2: So I'd be headed to a
3: world that I feel I can master. That really, that will also really show me who I am. And I have, I'm of course talking about '90s world, the world that is a perfect recreation of inner city coffee shop, hip art scene, American urban. 90s, like between the period of roughly 1992 to 1997, 98. I'm thinking like roughly Pearl Jam 10 to Pearl Jam no code era, mm-hmm. uh, American uh, urbanity, just because I feel like having come from the era of hyper connected, hyper aware social media and digital devices, I'd be, I'm already sort of savvy and amped up, but I could approach this more down tech world with a little more relaxation. I'd be a little more confident and in control here. Uh, I wouldn't have to adapt my closet too much. I've got a lot of flannel and jeans already. I could identify the bands that it was cool to like before they came out and that gives me the sense of mastery that i feel west world visitors get by shooting people without recourse so it would it would give me everything i wanted and i wouldn't feel too guilty about it so that's yeah. what i'm going
0: for would you would you take on the role of a zine publisher could you publish that's- a zine in in your world that's tempting, but I, I wonder if that's maybe too much investment
3: uh, in terms of time. I think I'd just be a a columnist, like I would be I would be sent by my like there'd be zines that you could partner with and I'd be sent by a zine to these underground shows so I could see these acts before they got big. Like oh, you're definitely going to want to check out Foo Fighters. I hear I hear Dave Grohl is is really got is really putting putting it back together after after Nirvana fell apart.
0: Wow, yeah, excellent. All right, so so Seattle World Pacific Northwest yes. World is where <laughs> is where you're headed. That sounds that sounds delightful. Um,
2: I'd love I, to meet Cameron Crowbot, by the way.
0: <laughs> 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 um, I would like to go to uh, early modern England world and uh, travel across the country as a member of the Chamberlain's Men or the King's Men, uh, the the troupe of actors that Shakespeare had an investment in. Um, given the the astonishing pace at which those plays were composed and the fact that like they they had a repertoire that included other things as well. It seems like there was never a dull moment that they, you know, the, the life of most actors is like uh Brief, brief periods of furious activity, uh, punctuating long stretches of unemployment, and it doesn't seem like that's how they lived. It seemed like like uh, you know, two or three shows a day was the norm. You had a repertoire of maybe a dozen or twenty on hand at any time that you could just rattle off. Uh, it seems like it seems like it would be it seems like it would be fun, and the kind of the the theatrical practice seems like it, you know the the uh, uh, not insisting on realism, the kind of improv comedy aesthetic that a lot of Shakespeare's plays have, just to be like, oh, it's, you know, it's a beach in Illyria on a bare stage, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's funny. I'm going to need a suggestion of ye olde non-geographical location, like, uh, like ye olde privy or ye olde apothecary's office, um, and, uh, and go on. Maybe I'd actually introduce short-form improvisation to the Chamberlain and later the King's Men. I think they'd, they'd take to it readily. <laughs>
3: uh, well it would it, it would definitely seem like that in the tourist version of it, because I think the one thing we can take away from the worlds is that there's always a heightened concentration of action in a very limited geographic and temporal space, so like right. everything is going to happen right now and right to you if you step outside your front door and look for it.
0: It's not unlike Disneyland in a a place like that, right? Like, uh, you know where the parade route is. And if you park yourself on the parade route, the whole parade uh, is going to pass you by. All right. Let's just talk, uh, briefly before we get to Westworld about a couple of exciting things happening on the, uh, the, uh, overthinking it gift guide. We talked about the gift guide last, uh, last week. You know what it is. It's a cynical cash grab. No, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean that. It's a, uh, A wonderful, delightful set of articles, short, short blurbs recommending uh, holiday gifts for 2016 from The Overthinkers to you. Uh, It is written in scintillating and delightful prose. And each link to a piece of merchandise uh, yields a small kickback from Amazon to overthinking it. Uh, And uh, so we, uh, like everyone else, do these gift guides. We've been doing them, though, since 2008-2008. When we started the site, before gift guides were cool, we were, uh, we were doing gift guides. A few things coming to, um, a few things coming to the gift guide. We're actually updating it after we published it uh, with a few new items. One is in the coffee section. Uh, we've we've <laughs> always focused in the coffee section on uh, esoteric coffee brewing equipment. Usually, it's it's Ryan and I trying to sort of out uh, outdo each other with the obscurity and impracticality of our recommendations. But here's an actual practical recommendation for you. However, you brew your coffee, if it's in a Mister Coffee the uh, The best thing that you can do for yourself is uh, get some good beans that 's like you know more than anything else that that is what matters and uh, we have a uh, an interesting kind of introductory bean mail-order service to recommend. If you sort of don't know what you like in terms of fancy coffee but want to find out, uh, that's going to be on the gift guide. And also, surprise, uh, for Christmas and for the release of Rogue One, we have recorded an overview, and alternative commentary that you can play alongside your own copy of the movie on... Star Wars, the Force awakens that that you can, uh, that you can download watch uh, listen to while you 're watching Star Wars, The Force awakens, and have it, uh, have it be like you 're sitting around with uh, your friends, the overthinkers, just chatting about the movie and alongside that we 're uh, actually running a special on our uh, Star Wars original trilogy. Uh, Overview package, which also includes a special bonus podcast on the prequel trilogy so you can get entire Star Wars coverage. Uh, this holiday season, and that is not something, uh, that, that you should pass up. The Overthinking It gift guide is on the homepage of the site at overthinkingit.com. Please check it out there at overthinkingit.com. Get yourself something nice and you'll be supporting the site that you love. All right. Westworld. Uh, John, you're not on, on the podcast very much. So I, I sort of want to, uh, I, I sort of want to take advantage of your, uh, of your presence while you're here. Um, can you tell us what a, a, a thought experiment is and how it might relate to the television show Westworld, which is about sure. robots?
3: I'm happy to talk because I'm I'm such an infrequent guest, but every time I show up, it's all about me. Everything is is built around. No, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, thought experiments. Let's talk about them. So Westworld, the TV series, has a lot to say about the nature of consciousness. You don't have to watch too many episodes before you get that impression. And if you read a lot about the theory of consciousness, as it is as a human experience, if you read a lot of popular science on it especially, but even some of the more Abstract textbooks they'll they'll lay out a lot of thought experiments, uh, ways to sort of visualize the way consciousness works, like how do thoughts work? How do we perceive and react to things? What is it like to was it like to have an abstract concept of something versus having the thing right in front of you? And a lot of these thought experiments, if you read about them, will play out kind of like events in this TV series, Westworld. Uh, I know Ben has an example that he wants to touch on a, uh, a little bit later. But I'm going to talk about one, uh, a term of art that was created by a cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, uh, sort of as a derisive term, and, and I'll explain why, called Cartesian theater. The idea being that consciousness... Uh, is this thing inside of our brains. Well, like We might think of it as the soul or the ego. And there's stuff out there in the world, like lamps and apples and people, and when we see them, when we sense these things, that sensory information is passed into our brain, and at some point it's delivered to the seat of consciousness, and the seat of consciousness decides what to do with it. Uh, Decides whether to... Uh, you know, re- how to react to it and what to react and then sends those instructions out to the body in order to uh, in-, in order to react properly. Now, the issue, as Dennett points out, with Cartesian theater, uh, and he-, he names it this after Rene Descartes, the-, the philosopher who whose concept of mind we sort of got it from. The issue with Cartesian theater, as Dennett points out, is that it doesn't really answer the question of what consciousness is. It just boots it back a level. Uh, Instead of instead of you know you ask the question what is consciousness and so like oh consciousness is this seat of the brain that decides what to do with sensory inputs and then the question is well how does it decide and it's like well either there's like a little person inside the little person's brain inside your head or we realize we haven't really answered the question so Right, right yeah so a lot so a lot of what uh. A lot of what this show debates or has us think about, and it really doesn't give us a straight-up answer one way or the other, which I'm actually okay with, uh, just for the sake of of thought experiments, not necessarily for the sake of narrative, is what is going on inside these robots' heads. They're reacting to what people tell them, and they're saying things in response, but is that response coming from intentionality, or is that response coming from... A, a deeply, deeply scripted set of uh, set of programs, and I think Ben has has some ideas on this that he wants to elaborate on.
1: Sure, I mean the the thought experiment that came to mind when watching this is uh, the the what's euphemistically referred to as the Chinese room, which is this idea of you know you imagine a room where, with with a guy inside of it uh, who has a book of instructions on how to interpret. Uh, The Chinese language. He doesn't speak Chinese or know how to write in Chinese, but he has a bunch of instructions that basically say, "Okay, if, you know, these symbols get slid underneath your door, you write these symbols on your piece of paper and slide them back out to the person who gave you uh, the papers in the first place. And the idea is basically if you came up with the right set of instructions, that room could speak Chinese, even though the person inside of it doesn't understand what he's doing. He's just filling out rote instructions. And the idea is that if you're, you know, translating that to a computer, you could imagine a computer that appears to be conscious but isn't really, that there's something that it's like to be human that isn't fully captured by, you know, simply being able to go through the rote actions that a human might take. Yeah, right.
2: Yeah yeah and and I think that when I think about these thought experiments one of the big determinants here is are you in a frame of thinking a heuristic wherein the ways that you externally describe or observe a phenomenon are the only things that you know about it right Uh, Does that does that make that that relates to this, right? Yeah,
0: dive dive in a little bit. Unpack what you're saying ever so so, slightly. So
2: so there's a lot of different philosophies uh, and philosophical approaches to to this particular question. uh, But the question of what can you say about things that you can't measure? Right. Or you can't uh, falsify. Right. Uh, Those are different, obviously, things that you see versus things that you can't see. Can you theorize about things that are abstract? Right. Rather than concrete and in front of you. And a lot of the people that you run into who are kind of armchair philosophers about artificial intelligence, because they come at it from a a practical, pragmatic kind of way of thinking, right? As in like, well, with computers, we don't have to theorize and we don't have to imagine what a computer would do, we can just make it do it, right? Uh, And as such, there's often a correlation there between uh, people who work on those kinds of projects and people who think in this sort of positivistic way, as in like, well, I can say things about that which I can measure and which I can uh, I can make assertions about things that I can observe. Right. Um, uh, One one sort of one sort of similar idea for this is uh, the idea that. If you have kind of two different particles in quantum physics that have all the same characteristics, they're indistinguishable from each other, right? You can't say that one of the particles is different from the other, right? Because once you've measured everything about it, then it is what it is, right? You can't say, well, that this one might have this thing going on. No, if you can't see it, you can't say it. So from that perspective, if you're looking at the Chinese room, right, from the outside and the Chinese room, you put in the Chinese and you get out the Chinese, what basis would you have, For for asserting something about that Chinese room that like, oh, there might be a guy in there who doesn't uh, who doesn't who doesn't speak Chinese and is just reproducing this to us. Or do we only know so much about these things? Can we or can we only assert so much about these things as we can observe them? Uh, right, and I think that's huge in Westworld, which is, of course, ironically, a show we are all watching, in which none of the stuff is real, right? Which is, I think it's important <laughs> to remember about Westworld: none of this actually happened, right? The the guy from McPoyles is from the McPoils is not actually Ed Harris, right? Like in real life, they're actors and they're pretending to be people, and and it's funny to think that the base reality we're all aspiring to is the reality of a television show, which kind of lets it off the hook a little bit with these questions of what we often refer to as interiority. On the podcast right the, the the internal experience of people but i mean this before westworld i had not heard of the chinese room uh uh thought experiment i've heard a lot of it, thought experiments involving consciousness like like um like like uh, zombies right philosophical mm-hmm. zombies. Who are, yeah. who are sort of posited beings who exhibit all of the outward traits of fully formed humans, but who don't have a subjective frame of reference. They don't have that Cartesian theater, right? And you can sort of hypothesize that they might exist, or you can posit if they exist, then what else might be the case, and so on and so forth. Sure.
1: And, and yeah. I should note that the Chinese room is a version of the philosophical zombie argument, but it's specifically responding to the idea that you could somehow tell the difference based on behavior. It's, it's a response to the Turing test at the end of the day. It's, it's a response to the idea that you could somehow tell that something is conscious just by watching the way it behaves.
0: It also, it has, it has a certain computer science kind of flair to it. Like there's a, there's an idea, two related ideas in computer science called encapsulation and information hiding, um, which, uh, which basically has to do with uh not with uh objects in object oriented computer languages presenting an outward interface to the world and having their inner workings. And the uh the other objects in the system don't care about the inner workings of like very specifically don't care about the inner workings of the object, only about the public interface uh of that object. So there's just a kind of there's a kind of computer science y habit of mind uh that I you know that comes up that just seems apparent to me in the Chinese room, uh, in the Chinese room argument, and, and especially since it's involved in in uh, uh, conversations around artificial intelligence. But John, what does any of this have to do with the television show Westworld? What
3: does any of this have to do with the show? So, I mean, let's let's ground in the example of one particular character, the character of Maeve, uh, played by sandy Newton. Uh, she is the character on the show who I think has the most concrete exploration of what consciousness entails, uh, because she's the one who is awake as it were on both sides of the veil, if you will, both in the world of the park and the world outside the park in the operating room, uh, and the, the park offices. And there's the, there's the very vivid scene a couple episodes in where she's saying that no she's fully conscious she can make her own decisions like she's just coming up with things off the top of her head and the tech felix who's working with her hands her his tablet and as she's talking she sees the words that she's saying unfolding in essentially real time including several branching options off of each and she tries to stump it a few times but is just continually stymied by it until she until she like blanks out and has to be rebooted uh, I think that's that's a very excellent demonstration of, I, I think, probably literally the Chinese room argument, like sort of playing that out as an not as a thought experiment but as an actual test case. Like if you were presented with concrete evidence that the ideas you had were not being generated spontaneously from some sort of ether but were in fact being read off of a list of instructions akin to the dude sitting in the Chinese room translating language that he doesn't understand – what what effect would that have on you i mean i think i think obviously it would be profoundly traumatizing to to most of us cuz we're used to the illusion at least if it's not an actual thing of our ideas coming from some free and unburdened place
2: yeah it's interesting and especially especially and you can add the additional complication and i don't know and the show does make some distinctions here between mm-hmm. the people like to elide the difference between having a subjective frame of reference and a frame of experience, sort of sentience, that sort of those sorts of ideas of consciousness. Right. Like, mm-hmm. do you know, the Cartesian theater, as you're describing it. Right. Do you do you have that notion that you have this sort of show of the world? Yeah, is there
0: experience? Is there a little Picard in in your yeah. head chair? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly.
2: Exactly. Or versus are you able to are you independent? Right. Are you independent, capable of making your own decisions, capable of exercising, you know, quote, unquote, free will? Right, and I think that that there's a lot of conflation of those two ideas, not necessarily in the show, but by characters in the show, right? Where it's like, well, I have free will, and therefore I'm conscious. And it's like, well, you might not have free will. It's like, oh no, I don't have free will. Oh wait, no, I do have free will. Does that really answer the question of whether you're conscious or not? Right? It's it's interesting yeah. because these are slightly really different. There's a there's a question that the show
3: walks up to, uh, up to the final episode, and then I don't think really resolves in the final episode. But uh, Ford. Uh, Anthony Hopkins' character touches on it several times. Uh, The idea whether these inordinately complex lifelike robots versus humans and the idea that there is this one magic gap that they have to leap across in order to become truly alive. And Ford, I I think it's in the in the antepenultimate episode uh, in discussing his debates with Arnold back in the day, says, Ultimately, no, there's no real difference. It's just that we're we're more complex. Like once you reach a certain level of complex, I'm, I'm not quoting it properly. Once you reach a certain level of complexity, once the script of possible responses gets deep enough, that's what consciousness feels like. But there's no there's no magic on off switch. Uh, other than the fact that, I mean, really, the only difference is that we can command you; you can't command us.
0: So, I mean, it's it, the conversation that we're having is is interesting because we sort of want to consider the robots as a phenomenon, right? Or androids, or what you know, whatever specifically they are most accurately called. Um, and and to ask the question. Um, the the to ask the question like are they conscious do do they become conscious are certain ones of them uh, conscious and there there's actually there's kind of multiple versions of this Mave consciousness uh, kind of becoming aware of uh, a kind of conspiracy like the the paranoia con- model of consciousness versus yeah. the more uh, Dolores mystical model of consciousness where uh, consciousness is is sort of a journey. Um, a journey inward. And actually, I would say that, like, rather than real and pretend, um, the, the, the dichotomy that really operates throughout the whole series is sort of center versus edge, is, is sort of centered versus edgy and crazy. Um, like, yeah. at, at the edges of the park is where all the, the crazy poop happens, right? Um, but, but the, the, we actually, Beyond that, have I think a moral question that that goes beyond, the, or uh, I guess that gets into philosophical ethics as opposed to sort of epistemology and and um, uh, you know theories of intelligence and things like this, which is that like in in a world where we can't distinguish the philosophical zombies or where we couldn't distinguish the philosophical zombies from the uh, humans without someone telling us <laughs> right which ones are which, <laughs> does it matter? Does it matter who we shoot? Right? Like is it under what kind of crazy logic could we have a justification for uh, for uh, violating uh, the categorical imperative uh, with the philosophical zombies, treating them as a means uh, to, uh, to gratification of various kinds rather than as an end um, – but not with our not with our our fellow humans right Should, shouldn 't we all be sort of tarred with the same brush uh, shouldn 't we all be uh, treated as a means or you know or as an uh, as an end uh, I, and this is the sort of i mean this is the sort of moral question and I saw this early on as a critique of almost of realistic video games or, or something like that, as sort of virtual entertainments where there's a kind of mimesis of human behavior in an interactive way going on, not in a kind of dramatic depiction kind of way, but in a participatory way, right? Like, because it's that, like, I don't know, is... is Are, are you suggesting that a delight that is violent might have an end that is,
1: uh, I don't know, maybe violent as well?
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, th- that, uh, well, I God, I want to I want to talk about that quote. But let's uh, le- le- let me let me uh, let me stick with this, though. Like, is it is it am I wrong? Am I is it a straw man argument? If uh, if I say that that maybe there's a there's a line to be drawn between like beating up the hooker and Grand Theft Auto and some of the more depraved stuff that we see happening in Westworld?
1: I, th- I mean, I think Westworld
2: makes overt reference to video games right. as a metaphor for what's happening. So you don't have to speculate. But no, go go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean- so I,
1: I connect drawing the line to the philosophical zombie argument, I think there is kind of this straight line from the video game NPC to the, the hosts at Westworld to just other human beings. And that it, it ultimately this gets back to, I mean, while we're on a philosophy kick, the problem of other minds, which is that really we can't tell the difference between anybody else and philosophical zombies. Like we're just guessing that everybody else has consciousness. Like we do. There's not really any way to empirically prove it. And so what you're willing to do to a robot or an NPC, which your, your reason tells you doesn't have consciousness, but human and humans do is not all that distinct from the way you treat your fellow man, because really you can't tell if they have consciousness either.
2: Yeah, it's very similar to how losing your job to a robot isn't really any different from losing it to another person. But because <laughs> <laughs> if it's not you, then it's not you. No, I'm sorry, that's uh, that's that's uh, that's a being a little glib. But I know exactly what you're. I mean, people t- are taking it as a given. I think that we know that other human beings are deserving of sort of special dignity. But once you start calling those things into question, it's not like those are self-evident conclusions. Right, like yeah. you have to make do some mental gymnastics to get to that point. And, it's, and I and think we
3: we we see that in the show with the example of the Man in Black, uh, Ed Harris's character, who we learn by the final episode (spoiler alert) is uh, is really uh, Jimmy Simpson, aka Doyle McFoyle's, uh character William, as well. Uh, in that he, as described, is a bit of a sociopath. Uh, he he describes his his falling up the falling apart of his marriage and his inability to. Process his his wife and daughters' uh, suffering and just his ignorance of them, but he and uh, and he also and we see in his evolution as a younger character the cruelties he inflicts not only on very lifelike robots but on his notional brother-in-law Logan as well. Who by the end of the voyage he's dragged around uh, at rope and gunpoint for a suspiciously long period of time, and then sends back into the world on horseback naked. So he's, he clearly doesn't see other conscious beings, whether human or robot, as capable of having lived experiences as genuine as his own. He sees them as there to amuse himself, whether that's a function of his wealth or just a function of some, some defect in his personality is up for debate
0: yeah i mean do you feel like there's i don't know there is a there's a sense in which like the park sort of shows you who you are who you really are and he was always like that all along and this kind of timid milk toast of a character who showed up on the train uh wouldn't sleep with the uh the like the orientation host robot and and wore a white hat whereas logan logan was like oh i'm gonna do all this crazy bachelor party stuff with you, you know? Um, I, I don't know. I don't shed a lot of tears for Logan. I feel like oh,
2: Logan's I could... great. I love Logan. Logan's the best. Logan's the only one who figures out what's really happening, right? <laughs> Which is that it's an entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> From, the other thing is, here's the problem with Logan is that nobody told him about the sentience, right? <laughs> Although this is the other side of the argument, right, which is that nobody says, "Hey, by the way, you know, we've 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 determined, even though this isn't how humanity achieved consciousness, we've determined that the robots are achieving consciousness through being thrust into decades long, ultimately repetitive personal hells, right? And you you are subjecting a living being to unimaginable suffering. No, they, how if he doesn't know that, is he really to be held accountable for? playing the game the way that it's meant to be played i mean the other big thing is when logan tells william hey william you're falling in love with an amusement park ride and i you're gonna marry my sister and you talking like this in front of me is tremendously disrespectful to my sister is logan wrong right like just because dolores is a protagonist uh i guess you could say well logan doesn't have all the information
0: right but it's <laughs> uh, sure you're 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 right In an abstract consideration, but by that point, the show has set us up to care about the robots more than it set us up to care about Logan and Logan's glibness and kind of cavalier attitude towards towards the robots. Logan's treating the robots like robots, uh, you know, rather than like uh, either works of art or else sentient beings like valuable for different reasons.
3: Now yeah. we're getting into infinitely recursive levels of meta because we're talking about the narrative the park Westworld has constructed versus the narrative that the TV show produced by HBO Westworld has constructed. You know, and one they're... of my
0: favorite uh, uh, <laughs> reviews of the show wa- uh, was by Emily Nussbaum in the New Yorker, and she actually mm-hmm. talked about the show Westworld as a kind of as a, uh, a kind of metaphor for the HBO prestige drama, which has come. <laughs> conflicting uh conflicting imperatives one is to deliver um compelling storytelling something that you'll be proud uh, kind of proud to watch or really uh compelled and enthralled by and and another is to provide a uh just an unbelievable uh level of debauchery in tna that um you know, that that uh, audiences will will uh, uh come back for again and in, uh, again and again and again and that this is a this is an issue both in both West worlds, right? Like uh <laughs> the w the, the, the our West world and the West world within the West world. Um th- this what? dichotomy is kind an of, issue. I kinda so like this,
1: that because I think I think the park is an example of kind of this idea of like peak prestige TV because you know, the Westworld theme park is not a movie. It doesn't have like one start to finish story that everybody hears. It's much more of the the kind of TV model of it's a box of toys that you take out every week and tell a slightly different story with, and you can just keep coming back to it, which is generating new narratives every week.
3: I, I do like this interpretation as well, especially because it lends a lot of credence to Evan Rachel Wood, who's also starred in the HBO series True Blood, and Mildred Pierce, uh, finally waking up and rebelling against her creators.
0: <laughs> <laughs> she, I like. I gotta say, th- this is the, the top notch acting like across the board in oh absolutely in this series and she 's incredible like i i 'm familiar with her more as like marilyn manson 's uh girlfriend or whatever like the uh like her and and some of her more provocative early indie film roles uh and things yeah. like this all i m d b and and come up with some names in in just a second, but like she uh is a fantastic uh Just completely, um, uh, you know, completely straight ahead, ingenue and then progressively reveals uh, layers as the story demands this uh, of the character, like in a way that I just, I was so impressed by. I thought it was great, and then like, you know, you can't go wrong with Anthony Hopkins. uh, Like Jeffrey Wright is a first team all star, um, and And
3: James James Marsden
0: as well. Everyone's favorite. (laughs) He's. I had someone say. So I had a friend say to me like. Hey, James Marsden finally found a part that, you know, he can get showcased in. And I was like, are you kidding? That guy's a legit movie star. You know, he's like, (laughs) well, I mean, I,
3: I, I I think he fits in our role of actors who work in that, you know, he consistently delivers good performances, but you're not going to see him. He's not going to open a movie the same way that, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Evans or or one of the Hemsworths would Um, Not anymore, but like. But like you, te- you always know it's him. It's like,
2: oh, it's James Marsden. Yeah. yeah, look, it's it's, it's Cyclops. Um, That's because Teddy isn't Ryan Gosling. He's the guy who doesn't get the girl, so Ryan Gosling gets the girl, right? <laughs> James, I love James Marsden. <laughs> One must imagine Nicholas Sparks happy, right? If like James <laughs> Marsden has to keep <laughs> infinitely dying so that somebody else is with his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. That was my favorite part of the show probably was like, the Nicholas Sparks parody. I'm
0: I'm thinking I'm thinking of films like uh like 13 um 13 was directed by Katherine Hardwick I think. Yes. Uh and uh Pretty Persuasion um and things like this when I think of the kind of the early provocative career of Evan Rachel Wood the films that I associate her with uh yeah. rather than
3: she was she was very much able to disappear into this role and this role, which is really like several roles. It's her, it's her as the, you know, farmhand ingenue. her as the questing explorer in consciousness, her as the cold affectless sociopathic murderer. Like it's, it's amazingly done.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, uh, Newton or Tandy Newton, I've heard it pronounced is, uh, is another one where as she, as Maeve sort of wakes up, uh, Uh, You know, that's a tough uh, that's a tough needle to thread because these are not these are sort of there's a a section in in An Actor Prepares, which is the uh, Konstantin Stanislavski's kind of seminal acting sort of textbook that uh, that really is the basis for 20th century psychologically realistic. Uh, realistic acting um, where he Mm -hmm. talks about the difference between imagination and fantasy imagination being a capacity to uh, construct scenarios that are possible fantasy being uh, a, a, the ability to like imagine travel to other worlds or things that are not necessarily possible in your, uh, in, in your given world. And it seems like both things are required uh, required here of the actors. And I, I I think they, they, um, I think they deliver with, uh, I mean, I think they deliver with, with a plum. But as, I mean, all these people are, all these people are arrayed, all this extraordinary talent, uh, on the acting side, this, this extraordinary physical production, um, beautiful, beautiful photography of incredible landscapes and, and amazing CGI, um, A fantastic score. All of this is sort of a raid, but, but a little bit, I kind of want to ask to, to what end? Like, I know we don't do reviews, but, but were you, were you guys compelled by, by the show? Or did you, were you more, was it more fascinating? Um, here, was it more fascinating than it was compelling? For I, me? I should oh, Sure, go. yeah, you go. No, 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 you, you go, Pete. Uh, I, okay. I didn't – I should have thrown that question to someone in particular. So, Pete, what do you think? <laughs> so, for me, I
2: didn't – I couldn't extract the enjoyment or didn't want to extract the enjoyment of Westworld from the process of figuring out what was happening. Uh, and, and in that sense – because I, I, once I got into it a little bit, I was reading all the theories and I was keeping up with kind of the uh, – the kind of uh, uh, enhanced the enhanced viewing experience that is speculating about a television show while you're watching it, um, which, of course, is uh, as a big fan of A Song of Ice and Fire and, and Game of Thrones before season five, uh, is, is something I also used to do uh, for that. So the idea that, well, Westworld is trying to surprise you with a bunch of things that it's hinting at and alluding to, and you should try to figure out what it's saying, in that sense, I found it very entertaining and very interesting. Uh, but I don't know if my participation in it extended all that much past appreciating the tension and suspense of wanting to know what was going to happen. Um, I mean, what do you what do you uh, John or Ben think?
3: So I'll weigh in. Uh, I I had a hard time appreciating the. I mean, I, I think I'm with you in wanting to know what was going to happen more so than wanting to know what happened to any particular character. In, if only because as the series went on, it made eminently clear that what could or couldn't happen to particular characters was ultimately down to the decision of a couple of people, either uh, Anthony Hopkins' character or Jeffrey Wright's character, and eventually only Anthony Hopkins' character. Like it it was clear after a while that everything that could conceivably happened existed within the mind of Anthony Hopkins's character. Like it it could only have come from him. So with that in mind, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get really attached to what any of these characters are doing. If you know that they could be reset at any time. So that, that diminished a lot of the drama for me.
1: For me, what, Diminish because I, I think I came down on the same side where there was much more a fascination than it was a, a, a compelling in the sense of uh, dramatic was that I didn't really have a strong rooting interest. I I, I, should say I didn't really care what happened to most or really any of the characters because most of the humans are jerks for the most part uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and not even compelling jerks in the, in the sense that like, uh, you know, Tyrion Lannister, Tyrion Lannister is a bit of a jerk. But he has, like, an obvious emotional core that you can identify with and and kind of root for. Uh, But it was kind of hard to tell what the humans wanted at at any given moment. And the robots, well, they're robots up until kind of the end. And so you know that, A, stuff that happens to them may or may not even affect them moving forward. And, B, I'm a human and they're, you know, stupid robots. So what do I care? Uh (laughs) 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 And and actually, like, at the end of the day, when you you get to, like, the big conflict that this is building towards of, you know, the robots are rising up. Uh, it's a bit of a problem because, not a problem, but it just makes for kind of mixed emotions. Because, on one hand, you know, the robots, it kind of seems right for them to rise up because they're, you know, living this oppressive, like, hellscape life. Uh, but on the other hand, like, I'm rooting for the humans to not get overthrown by the robots, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I should say they do a terrible job of having an anti being overthrown by robots protocol in the park.
3: Yeah. So, uh Ben, this touch this reminds me of something that Pete you brought up that I want to touch on. Uh the the throwaway gag that you made made earlier Pete that like Westworld as a show is not real, like the things happening on it aren't real. And I mean, obviously that's true on one level. This is a science fiction show about what would it be like if we developed robots of this level of capability and would they really be conscious and what would that mean for us? But it got me thinking and I wonder if this changes our view on it any any What if this were a TV show set 35 years in the future when robots of this level of sophistication are present, are prevalent, are known to exist throughout the world in in various forms and functions? And someone says, oh, let's do a TV show about what if robots gained consciousness and rebelled against their owners? This is what it might look like. In other words, exactly the same content, but as viewed by an audience in a world where robots of this sophistication are real. Would... Would our reaction, A, could such a show be made or would that just be too gauche, like the idea of our robot, like our toasters turning on us and killing us? And B, what would our reaction as an audience be? Would it be any different?
2: I'm trying. I'm specifically trying to look up uh, uh, the the what I want to say what year it was. Then the the, uh, the movie, have you guys seen the movie Ghosts in the Machine, the 1993 horror film Ghosts in the Machine? Have you guys seen it? Uh, it no. it starts no. Karen Allen uh of Indiana Jones fame I believe and it's about the 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 uh it's about mostly the scenario you're describing uh I believe which is which is that the uh that, that the machine, the everyday appliances start murdering people. <laughs> and it was very scary, right? Uh, but at least for me when I was 13 and I watched it, there's a particularly scary scene, if I'm thinking of the right movie, because this is a, an, a title that tends to jump, much like a robot consciousness, the title of this movie tends to jump from movie to movie, so you're not sure which one you're actually watching. A Ghost <laughs> in the Shell, Ex Machina, which one is it? But there was a scene where a guy microwaved, his, was, was in the kitchen, and the microwave was gonna kill him. And the door just opened, and the Microwave ramped up the microwave radiation in the room so much that it boiled his face. Uh, And 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 then he (laughs) fell down and died. And that was very scary. Um, Did that movie feel. the, The interesting thing about that movie, as opposed to Westworld, is like, what are the interests that I care about that the movie feels compelled to show me? Right? And they're mostly the people that are being killed by the robots. <laughs> and there's something subversive about the way that Westworld strips away. It makes you think that characters are people. And then it, it, it pulls that out from under you, right? And at the end, there's really very few characters in the show that are human beings. It's pretty much that are like and are part of the story, right? There's pretty much yeah. there's Ed Harris. I mean, it's debatable whether the Ford that we know is an entirely biological human. Um, based on, of course, the handshake scene. Uh, if you guys have been following all the theories, the idea that the last thing that Ford does for, to Bernard before going out to get his to get Jesse James, as it were, is uh, is he shakes Bernard's hand, and there's like a double take, and and you're reminded of a scene where Ford was talking about the old rickety bartender and said that the first hosts could give themselves away with a handshake. Uh, and so it's like, oh, is that an indication that Ford... It doesn't matter.
0: Fourth, but also, it also, and it also like there's a there's a uh, close up of the hand. There's like an insert of the of the handshake, and his hand looks uh, his hand looks a little weird, a little puffy and and stuff. I, I you know I don't know maybe maybe it's just Anthony Hopkins' yeah. hand. In which uh, case, my apologies to Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> you're you're I am not worthy to to you know to shake your hand awkwardly, but. Um, I don't know. It looks, uh, it, it, it was awfully lingering on that particular, on that yeah. particular aspect.
2: Yeah. So
3: I'll give one contemporary example, which is the closest I can come to it. And that's the current planet of the apes, uh, reboots, which are now three or four movies deep. And I think the, the final movie war of war for the planet of the apes, uh, just had its trailer release and is coming out next year. And, I haven't seen any of these movies, so my experience with them is purely based on other people's reaction to them and discussion of them. But what I've been able to gather, at least especially revived by this most recent trailer, is in these movies, watching these movies, everyone in the audience is rooting for the apes. Like, no, like very few people go to this and say, like, oh, wow, it's terrible that the human race might get killed off by these apes. Everyone is cheering for the apes. Uh even though the implication of that is like, no, this is the end of the human species. Uh, we brought about our own death and we probably deserve it. Uh, it's a sh- it's a shame that James Marsden – James Marsden gave these apes consciousness and intelligence <laughs> and an awareness of their suffering. Wait, J-
2: wait, James Marsden gives up his existence for the apes in much the same way he gives up his girlfriend to every other man that he's ever in a movie with? <laughs> <laughs> Except for Superman. He wins that yeah. one. But No, no
3: he, does, gives, he, does. he gives up – he gives up low, well, all kind of, sort of. I mean, yeah. In that one, I don't know. It's tough to say. Uh, yeah. James Marsden is suffering for all of our sins. But the <laughs> the, the point the point is that it, it is it is possible with the right, I guess, storytelling spin to tell a movie which is very not just anti particular humans, but but I guess makes you feel bad for the human race as a whole, and yet still has has a sort of heroic narrative, gives you a hero to pin your hopes on. Whether Westworld did okay. that, I don't know.
2: What it echoes is, I think, a lot of the literature in the mid-nineteenth century about slavery, and particularly I'm thinking of Uncle Tom's Cabin, where one of the big arguments in you know artistic literary society against slavery was that it was bad for the slavers. Right. That it was like morally bad to be a slaver and it made you a worse person. And that was a good reason not to have slavery. And you can see there are some problems with that argument.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, Sure. Well, but that's well, I don't know. I feel like there is a moral. I mean, there is there is I don't know. There is a moral argument that that is credible that says sort of doing bad things makes you a bad person and that's that right like the opportunity for um william to kill all of the hosts right is is not a good is not a a good opportunity actually it's a pretty good lab for that right like because william uh william kills all the hosts killing hosts is not bad but it's bad for it's bad for william so so in this case murder is bad because it's it's bad for william i mean i think that that i i i I don't know The, the problem i see with that argument is that it's it's uh that when you think that's the only or the most important thing, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> right <Run>. like like <laughs> right. you know murder murder can also be bad and like this is actually something that's in the that's it kind of embedded in the western genre a little bit like killing boy i don't you ain't a killer boy you know what i mean like uh the old the old grizzled uh black hat uh villain telling the you know telling the uh young inexperienced cowboy or whatever that like i you know i don't think you're you're up to this level of of inhumanity um that that it's uh, uh that it's uh and and westworld provides a, a lab that actually sort of denudes the killing of kind of moral force uh and and so uh, just shows it just shows it's, there, it it's, is there, are it's you saying
3: a- that take are you saying it's that kind taking a, delight in violence has a – oh, sorry. We
1: did that joke already. Right, we did that joke already. Right, <laughs> All right.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, you know what? Let's, we're go, We're going there. We are in so – let, uh, me, let, me, oh,
1: yeah. let me hit that thread real quick. Just The the, the, the idea of this is a laboratory because I think one of the things that's just about Westworld is it's a, it's a good example of the kind of end-of-the-world fiction that basically says that humans will have to pass a test in order to survive. And spoiler alert, we're going to fail that test because we're immoral. Because if we'd been really nice to the robots, if all of the tourists had, like, came to Westworld to, like, be really – to just, like, dress up in cowboy hats and run around and and play white hats, the robots wouldn't have rebelled because they wouldn't all have these terrible memories of being, like, raped and murdered and stuff by humans. So at the end of the day, like, if the robots take over, it's going to be because uh, a bunch of rich rich jerks uh, couldn't be nice
0: yeah. I mean it's a you know, Westworld is a uh like Westworld is like a Starwood category seven or eight resort. I don't think eight exists even. They they don't have a, a level in the loyalty program for that. Um I think uh-huh. I think a dollar figure is thrown out at some point, uh in forty the- forty
2: thousand a day, right? Yeah, that, that's what's quoted
3: at one point. So it's
0: like a it's like a super super fancy Earth hotel at the moment. I don't know. Maybe there's been huge deflation in the future. I don't know. Let's <laughs> talk about Romeo and Juliet, and let's talk about Act Two, Scene Six of Romeo and Juliet when uh, they are uh, uh, Romeo's hanging out with Friar Lawrence and. Um, and he's, they're, they're waiting for Juliet to show up to get married to, uh, to Romeo. The marriage has already been agreed upon, uh, and they're gonna do it. And, um, and Romeo's all hot-headed and young and 14 or 15 or whatever the hell he is. And, uh, um, and Friar Lawrence kind of sees his hot-headedness and counsels him gives him advice um these violent delights have violent ends and in their triumph die like fire and powder which as they kiss consume all right so that's that's enough to be getting on with but he he goes on uh and and uh kind of adds a corollary to his to his theory of violent delights and violent ends um He says, the sweetest honey is loathsome in its own deliciousness, and in the taste confounds the appetite. Therefore, love moderately, long love, doth so. Too swift arrives, as tardy as too slow." uh so this is you know he's counseling him against his sort of youthful hot headedness and against the kind of like uh crazy love that that uh that he's having and that that tragically is all he'll he'll ever have so this is not like this is not necessarily um this is not necessarily violence per se right he's talking about romantic love uh he's talking about uh romeo's love for juliet which is as kind of as kind of natural a love as we can imagine in in western literature right like so there's there's it's being kind of mis it's kind of misquoted here right like that because the yeah. what westworld is saying is like these perverse delights have perverse uh, perverse ends. It's not saying like, "Hey, dude, Romeo." Like, yeah, love is great. You're you're totally on the right track. Just simmer down a little bit. Like, don't don't be so hot headed. Don't be so uh, don't be so sort of youthful in your in your pursuit of your of your normal your normal love. So I don't know. How, how do you feel about Westworld as literary criticism, guys?
3: I I, I had a, uh, it's. It's a similar reaction to what I had when uh, – it, it's the very first episode where it's the it, the first guy who – Abernathy, when he quotes that. He also quotes a bit of Lear uh, earlier in his rant. Uh, I will do such things what they are yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. Uh, it's a line from Lear, and that struck me as a little false because, like, in the context, that line is Lear raving in powerlessness. Like, he's – There's a storm going, he's half-naked outside the castle he's been exiled from, and he's threatening various things that he has no power to back up. Uh, but it's used outside of context, and when, when you just deliver it out of context like that in the hand of a sinister character with ominous music underscoring it, it sounds pretty bad, but like, if you know a little more about it, it's it's not great. This, is, this
0: di- is my problem in general with when people say, well, Shakespeare says X, Y, or Z, right? Because yeah. all of these things are really situated in a dramatic context, and you can't disentangle, at least as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't disentangle them from those.
3: But of course, I mean, you know, Westworld itself is a microcosm of the American West, which is situated in a historical context. I mean, it's people who it's people who moved out west to uh, to find land that was you know that was given away through land grants or through an effort to settle areas further out west. Land that was you know taken from the from the from the natives who lived there, who are, are shown only briefly and very allegorically in this actual show. So, like. Through the entire, you know, geographical and historical real place that was the American West in the 1800s, they've created this fictional, folky microcosm. So I, I, guess, I guess maybe that's similar in that if you, if you take a thing, strip away all the difficult aspects and concentrate it down to the parts that look and sound cool— you're going to get a, a looking – a cool-looking and cool-sounding experience, but that will ring false to people who know better. Like Like bring Howard Zinn on a tour of Westworld and, and see what his reaction is.
0: <laughs> Do you think Howard Zinn would be a white hat or a black hat in Westworld? Would he be like, like – he- would, it, would, it, would, it, would he finally be like, you know what? To hell with all this socialism, a people's history on my ass. Let's blow up some trains or something. I think Howard, I think Howard,
3: Zinn, I think Howard Zinn wouldn't even make it out of the lobby. He'd get in like this six hour debate with the, the pneumatic blonde host who was there to entice him. And then eventually the staff would have to come by and nudge him and be like, no, no, you, you got to keep going. This, this isn't all there is to the park. And he'd be like, what? Really? It was fascinating.
2: So it's interesting to think about this Romeo and Juliet quote in the context of Wyatt, right? If I may, yeah, uh, to bring it back to the show. So what? so the the code, right? These violent delights have violent ends. Is the a code to activate. I believe you can tell from reading the tablet. Well, if you freeze that and look it up the pro the, the still image later, uh, that what happens to Dolores is that she has the Wyatt persona, which exists outside of Dolores. She has the Wyatt persona uploaded to her host brain to be activated by uh, Arnold with the phrase, These violent delights have violent ends. Now Wyatt. Is it is it is sort of speculated? It was speculated throughout the show that Dolores and Wyatt were like the same person. Certainly, Teddy is told later to remember the events of the slaughter at Escalante as perpetrated by her himself and by Doris as being perpetrated by himself and Wyatt. Right? Um, But if this is the code to activate Wyatt. There's also discussion of another Wyatt. Now, it might be Wyatt as part of Dolores, but it might be a different Wyatt or Wyatt might exist outside of that. This might be the Wyatt that's associated with the Minotaurs, right, that are out, out there, the sort of weird horned people, although horned robots with uh, Tula Riley, with Angela, right? Uh, they they might have been there for the slaughter of the board at the end or they might be doing something else. But but it's it mentioned several times about Wyatt and Sizemore is working on a Wyatt host at one point two. That Wyatt is a cannibal, right? Uh, Wyatt's host, as worked on by Sizemore, is eating like a human leg or, or something. And and I think that it's it's speculated because you never see the faces of the super robots with the Minotaur heads that they might be cannibalizing other robots for parts and i can 't help but think that if as you 've read the Romeo and Juliet line about these violent delights or violent ends, and meaning that they 're like gunpowder going off right that when you bring the chemicals and gunpowder together, they explode right, and as such, they conclude they destroy themselves if the If the trigger language for Wyatt is is to is yes to enact upon this sort of violence. Uh, it, it is also a self-destructive odds. I mean, we see with 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 uh, Dolores when she kills all the hosts and she kills herself. It is it is possible that this whole model of bringing the robots into self-knowledge, right, is 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 a self is an act of, of uh, is full, prompting them to go into self-destruction, right? That maybe Westworld there's a there's a there's a track for this where Westworld heads into sort of a tragedy where the robots are do always doomed. From the moment they decide that they're going to wake up, they're not going to be Skynet. They're not going to destroy humanity. They're doomed, and they're going to destroy themselves. Right, Uh, Which is an interesting way to think about how it might happen in the future in the context of this. I don't know. I tend to think that – just speculate that the Wyatt persona was taken out of Dolores and exists somewhere else, either in one of Ford's secret hosts like in The Little Boy or out in the woods somewhere or is in like a Logan cyborg or like something. And that we're going to meet – and that Dolores and Wyatt are going to have to have a confrontation. uh,
0: Just just at a base level – Right. Season two of Westworld is about the war between the robots and the humans, right? Presumably. Yeah, because yeah, that, that's well,
1: when you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting question, because that would be a fundamental shift in the show, because that is no longer a show about a theme park where you go where tourists go to, you know, kill robots that that is now a Walking Dead esque show about the end of the world and like humans fighting it off. So it's, it's real, it'll be really interesting to see how they kind of keep any of the old elements of narrative, either through flashback to, like, the days bef- the before times uh, as well the as, long, bringing long in as ago, new yeah. elements. <laughs> Yeah.
2: It could be like a Hyperion Canto style debate among the AIs about what to do about humanity, where you see several different models from different robots as to what how they should act. And and the ultimate conflict is like Dolores versus herself as she tries to determine what course of action she should mm-hmm. take, right?
0: Or something Yeah, along I mean those there, lines. there there are three basic plot lines. It's, you know, Dolores versus Westworld, uh Dolores versus Ed Harris, or Dolores versus Dolores, right? Um, you
2: forgot uh, Dolores steals a car and, uh, and, and then heists a train and then jumps the car out of a plane and then she goes to <laughs> Dubai. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait, you're saying,
0: you're saying I mean, that it's, it's going to be – season two is going to be too fast to Dolores? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: I think it's very likely we'll see a collision between Dolores and Maeve because those, mm. those seem to be the, the kind of two likely power bases among the hosts. Uh, And they kind of they came to consciousness in a very different way, Mm -hmm. and so it'll be. I can imagine them having very different ideas about how to deal with the humans.
0: Well, so this is interesting. Do you feel like they have? Do you feel like they have different aims in in the end like I mean does Lor- does Dolores want to just be left alone and uh and Maeve wants to revenge herself upon the uh you know upon the infidels or or is because I it's interesting, like Dolores seems to the the emphasis in Ford's conversation with Dolores is that she has a choice that that shooting him is not as it was with Arnold, where she was more or less programmed to do it. It's Arnold, you know, Arnold pulled the trigger, even though it was Dolores's hand. Um, but uh uh, uh, but Dolores shooting Ford is, is an act of choice. Whereas with Maeve, uh, what's interesting is that when, when Bernard looks at her code before she snaps the, the, you know, the foldy iPad in half, um, he says, no, you're going to make it all the way to the train before you decide, uh- and then she uh, she snaps the iPad in half, and then she makes it all the way to the train before she decides to turn around and go back uh, for – presumably Do, for her daughter. Doesn't
1: he say that she makes it to the mainland? That is mentioned, yeah, the idea of a mainland, which yeah. – Yeah, and that, is that maybe doesn't go to the mainland. The, yeah, I think I think there's – I think there's meant to be
3: some ambiguity as to whether Maeve's decision to get off the train was the last step of her programming that Bernard didn't read to her or a decision of her own. Or yeah, or that
0: she didn't she didn't want to have re- read to her or that. um, Right. And, and by the way, uh, what happened with the Abernathy host? Did he get out of the did he get out of the park with the code, you know? The- my, my read on that
3: is that he didn't. Uh, in the, and I, I, had a, I had a discussion with this and, and folks afterwards. Cause, and, and I think this is another one of my review-type objections to the final episode. Is that it threw so many plot lines at us that some of them were kind of unclear. But at the very end, when the director, Charlotte, tells Sizemore, don't you have something more important that you should be doing? And he goes down to the cold storage but realizes none of the hosts are there. I, I think the more important thing he was supposed to be doing was escorting Abernathy out of the park. And the fact that he's not there is sort of the big, like, stunning reveal on on Sizemore's face.
0: Yeah, the the I mean that this they're like snuggling the intellectual property out because it'll right. be valuable on the you know I don't know it'll yeah world domination or or something like that I you know I don't know.
3: Yeah. Uh, you um, know, how are they going to roll out Samurai World without uh, without all this this valuable IP?
0: Wait, do you think do you think Samurai World exists or do you think it it like is this like the. Well, no, is nothing this...
2: in Westworld is real, Matt. It's a television show. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I want uh, my... to go to Samurai World. Pete, don't tell me. I Don't tell me I can't. These these my... podcast delights have podcast ends. My, my read on it was, that, and this
3: is, is just a guess, but, like, my read on it was Samurai World was their plan for after Ford was kicked off the board. It's like, we're going to expand Westworld by making a number of other theme parks. And the sort of hokiness of Samurai World was meant to be a little snub of, like, A, Sizemore's crafting ability compared to Ford's, and B, like, the, the incompleteness of the story. Like, it's not quite there yet. We need Ford's magic to make this really work. This is just a project in the offing.
0: I mean, yeah, I guess you could have you could have everything worlds, right? Like like you could have the world and who knows if the world you're living in is really West or if there are other people at all.
3: That doesn't that doesn't look like anything to me.
0: What door? (laughs) (laughs) What podcast?
3: But yeah, I like what what iPhone (laughs) <laughs> I like the theory of Dolores and Maeve being in conflict because they do represent, and I think it was rather, rather than you pointed it out the sort of dueling theories of, of what consciousness might actually be. Uh, there's Dolores who wants to make her own rules and Maeve who wants to learn what the quote unquote real rules are that govern her world. Uh, yeah. and
0: two different you know, modes like, of self-actualization. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, So. All right. uh, Last uh, last shot. Pete, Pete, bring us home. Um, Give us give us one last thought.
2: (laughs) So here's my last thought. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with one of my favorite children's stories, which is The Velveteen Rabbit. Yay. Yay. And, and and through a lot of this, I've been kind of having a headcanon of there being like a Velveteen Rabbit foil uh, to the Westworld artificial intelligences that sort of rides into town and it's like, they say consciousness is a maze. It's not, it's a fire, right? It's a fire that consumes. <laughs> uh, for those of you unfamiliar with The Velveteen Rabbit, it's a children's book from the 20s about a toy rabbit whose owner gets scarlet fever. Right. And and by because the owner the little girl has scarlet fever, all the little girl's possessions are burned Um, and, and the the Velveteen Rabbits only kind of recourse, only sort of escape. Possible escape from this fate, right? Other than sort of an attempted escape or kind of an adventure of sorts, is for the Velveteen Rabbit to become real. And if the Velveteen Rabbit becomes real, then it will not be destroyed by the other with the other possessions. And the Velv and a lot of the story is positioned as sort of an interrogation uh, of this notion that the Velveteen Rabbit might have become real at some point or might become real in the future. As juxtaposed against the Velveteen Rabbit's sort of physical degradation, like, oh, my eye is popping out. Oh, you know, I'm not as I'm not as like. Like um, my my fabric is worn, right? And like I'm not – all these other rabbits, you know, the other stuffed rabbits, the other stuffed animals look so much better than me. Uh, I can't possibly be real, right? And then the reveal at the end is that what makes you real is when somebody loves you,
0: right? And the idea being that – Wait, 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 Pete. Are yeah. you saying you're no bunny unless somebody <laughs> loves you? <laughs>
2: And, and it's interesting, right, because I had a, I had an English teacher in high school who was vehemently against the Velveteen Rabbit because, you know, human beings are not, the existence of human beings is not contingent on their love by other human beings. But in terms of talking about a way for inanimate objects to sort of achieve realness, uh, I, I, I mean, it seemed at times that the model that Westworld chose to achieve self-knowledge through suffering was something of an arbitrary one. Right, like could an inanimate object just as easily achieve self-knowledge through a love model, right? Like, like it seems edgy, it's certainly edgier, and it seems like it might feel truer than the Velveteen Rabbit. But I kind of want to pose the question to you guys that when you're thinking about, well, what does it take? Well, first of all, this is realness, not consciousness, Right. Those those are different questions. Right. Like, do you become real by suffering or do you become real by love? And I guess the Velveteen Rabbit does eventually become an actual rabbit. Right. Because of the love of the girl, uh, even though mm-hmm. it loses access to its, uh, its cloth body. I believe it runs off with the other rabbits. Um, yes. I mean, what do you what do you guys think about any sort of uh, potential argument? Like is any. Is any host, like, what I mean, I guess it comes down to also when Dolores looks out the window and says, I, I seek to see the beauty in the world. Is that just a, a, a foil for her? Is that just a trick? Are we in a situation where it's like, oh, wake up, sheeple. You need to realize that you're miserable. You have nothing to lose but your chains, right? Um, or is there an idea out there for a path towards something greater than just being, uh, being furniture, Right, if 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 if, if there's a, something having to do with uh, with love or something along those lines, either to you or from you or something along something related to that. I mean, what does that have to do with all of this? Right, like these models, these models. They, I find it confounding. Um, it just seems so easy to take as a given that everybody has to be unhappy. And it was a well, delightful it, little trick, right? That it the does, show played. Yeah,
3: it does raise an interesting question that realness is something that has to be bestowed upon these people, uh, upon these people. And I'll I'll call them people, even though they're notionally robots or bioconstructs or whatever, like someone has to, someone has to decide or point the way for them to be real. Like Arnold has to construct this, this maze within Westworld for Dolores to follow. And if she follows it enough times and eventually figures it out, she'll become real. Or Arnold has to insert wake up instructions in Maeve's programming. And if she wakes up outside the Westworld park and comes to grips with herself as an operated on and commanded being, she'll become real. But someone has someone outside them has to bestow it upon them. They can't spontaneously of their own accord decide one day, like, no, I'm I'm gonna be real at this point. Unless maybe that's Teddy's path. I don't know because we don't see a lot of his interiority. But he starts remembering things anyway. Uh, just in insofar as his quest for Dolores keeps him coming back and back and back over and over. So maybe maybe he's the middle ground.
2: Maybe hmm. there'll be a new model, right? Maybe it won't be the same maze for everybody.
3: Mm. So, you, so you mean they're they're going to fight off the the resisting or the resisting humans with a new model army? <laughs> <laughs> who who is the Oliver Cromwell of Westworld? That's what oh. I wanted
0: to I uh, or I was thinking maybe maybe it's the Dolores One Thousand that's going to come and uh, and you know um, fight the humans. It's going to be Elsie with
2: Ghost Nation, but that's something else altogether. Elsie and Stubbs.
0: I speak of the robot is – I speak of the robot – Who is to come after me? Uh, I am not worthy to contemplate her operational parameters. All right. These podcast delights do have podcast ends, and it's time for this podcast to end. Thank you very much for listening, and thanks to our panel, uh, Ben Adams, Pete Fenzel, John Parrish, and me, Matt Rather, for talking about Westworld. Please uh, head over to Overthinking It at the homepage there. You will find the Overthinking It gift guide uh, with many Amazon gifts and uh, as well added to that the non Amazon gifts of a uh, coffee subscription service, which uh, you might find interesting if you're interested in coffee and the Star Wars The Force Awakens overview commentary uh, coupled with uh, some discounts on our Star Wars original trilogy commentary. Check that out on the homepage of Overthinking It uh, and support the site around the holidays. Thanks very much for that. Uh, We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcasts. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it 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 probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve deserve. deserve
3: matt did i did i make it did i figure out the podcast this
0: time the podcast wasn't meant for you
3: oh
2: do i have to be reset and sent back to the farm hey overthinking it podcast listener We'd like to thank you for listening to the Overthinking It podcast. We'd also like to thank you, the only conscious being in existence, for manifesting all of us in your frame of reference. We appreciate your solipsism and your commitment, because if it wasn't for you imagining us, none of us would have the pleasure of conducting the work that we do today. So please, if you might visit the Overthinking a Gift Guide, which you yourself conceived of, uh, and then also uh, imagine next week's podcast, which you will, of course, enjoy because you have invented it yourself, we would, of course, appreciate it with an emotion that only exists due to your singular independent agency.
0: Well, Pete, you've invented the future of advertising.